Welcome to Talk Nation Radio, a half-hour discussion of politics as if the people mattered. I'm David Swanson. It is my great privilege to welcome to Talk Nation Radio this week, Maria Santelli. She is the executive director of the Center on Conscience and War, two things that you might not imagine go together, a 75-year-old organization founded to provide technical and community support to conscientious objectors to war. Based in Washington, D.C., Santelli has been working for peace and justice since 1996. You may want to check out the website of the Center on Conscience and War. It is found at centeronconscience.org, and you can find out your rights as a member of the military uh, in any capacity or a possible prospective member of the military or anyone else. Call 1-800-379-2679 or check out centeronconscience.org. Org. Maria also has a couple of excellent articles just published on truthout.org that we may be talking about. Maria, we are uh, sort of in wartime, sort of in peacetime. There's no draft. What is the relevance of conscientious objection right now? Well, I would say we are definitely in wartime, especially looking at what just happened this weekend. I can't let uh, this discussion go by without mentioning uh, the sickening events in Afghanistan on Saturday when the United States bombed the hospital, the Doctors Without Borders Hospital in Kunduz. Not only uh, bombed it, but bombed it for a sustained 30 minutes when there were no reported firefights in the vicinity and when the United States long had the exact coordinates and the hospital was well marked. And uh, this is just a disgusting event. I should be celebrating with my organization 75 years of supporting those who follow the counsel of their conscience and resist war. But I can't celebrate because I'm, I'm made sick by what, uh, by what war is. And this, is, this indiscriminate violence is war. It, it defines war. It characterizes war, every war. And so as I think about the suffering of those who are already wounded or sick and were in a hospital, because of the work that I do, I also think of those members of the U.S. military who were part of that bombing. And many of them are going to shake it off for at least the time being. But many of them will feel eventually, and many of them will feel immediately the consequences of those actions. They will understand this was not a mistake. This is just war. This is what war is. And for them, for many of them, this moment will crystallize their conscience, and they will urgently need a way out. They'll need a way to follow their conscience and separate themselves from the United States military and from their participation in war. And at that time, the Center on Conscience and War will be there for them, as we have been for conscientious objectors for 75 years. And we will help them follow the legal pathway that is available to them to be able to walk away from the United States military and become part of the larger movement for peace and justice. And and what is that legal pathway? What can they do to get out? Uh, I mean, what, what action should someone take who has who has figured out once they're in the military that they're engaged in something evil well so as you mentioned without a draft 
what does this look like? So, of course, in the draft days, when, when our organization, the Center on Conscience and War, was founded in 1940, there was a draft. So our work was to keep men of conscience, it was only men, uh, out, of, uh, out of the military uh, and provide them with alternative service. They, it wasn't that they didn't want to serve, they just didn't want to kill people. So we helped to provide them with alternative service, helped them uh, you know, craft their statements of conscience to not be drafted, to not be compelled to kill other people. So in 1962, there was still an active draft going on, but the Pentagon actually realized that there are going to be people who were either already drafted or perhaps, or perhaps maybe joined voluntarily, but have a crisis of conscience and realize once they get in there that they cannot do this. They cannot in good conscience uh, actively take part or even passively take part in, in war and war making. And so since that time, since 1962, there has been a process by which uh, members of the military can apply for discharge. There is DOD, they call it DOD, Department of Defense Personnel Policy, but there are, each branch has its own regulations on how to apply for discharge as a conscientious objector. So when people uh, realize that they can no longer take part in uh, war making, they can obviously give us a call and we'll provide them with all of the support that they need, or they can, you know, download these regulations themselves and, and make their application. They have three uh, legal burdens to meet. They have to prove that they are opposed to their participation in war in any form. They have to prove that these beliefs developed after they joined, after they enlisted, after they commissioned, whatever their particular case may be. So people say, well, you know, didn't they know what they were getting into? Well, you know, not to say that these people didn't have some responsibility, but of course they didn't really realize what they were getting into. We're sold such a, a heap of goods, you know, about what military service is, what war is, that a lot of times young people, they haven't thought about it at all, or they've been grossly misled when they join the military. So that's part of their burden. They have to prove that they are someone different, that when they joined the military, maybe they thought it was a necessary evil. Maybe they thought they were going to be getting the bad guys. They didn't think they were going to be bombing hospitals in Kunduz, Afghanistan. And then the third legal burden that they have is that they have to show that their conscience, these beliefs, are a controlling force in their life. In other words, they cannot live with themselves if they continue on this path of, of war. And so we help them craft applications that will uh, enable them to follow their conscience. Maria, you mentioned that some people might look at an incident like bombing a, a hospital and burning the patients to death uh, and, and say, well, that was just one accident in an otherwise admirable mission that's a necessary evil and so forth. It seems to me a lot of people are going to take one step further and say, oh, well, this particular war uh, is mistaken and misguided and uh, other wars are good and justifiable. Uh, and that apparently uh, doesn't count, doesn't register with uh, Department of So-Called Defense Policy. They have to go a third step and get to the understanding that, in fact, the entire institution of war is evil. And that's, that's extremely hard to get even peace activists to that point. Uh, how many people sort of get stuck? Uh, they haven't quite gone far enough in, the, in their understanding to actually qualify to conscientiously object. Well, that's the, that's the real power of this process. I mean, how many of us 
especially, you know, people listening to this program, people who are Pacifica listeners specifically, uh, really know their own hearts, they think. We think we know our own hearts. We think we know our own conscience. But how many of us have actually gone through that exercise of writing down what it is that you believe, your values, your moral framework, what tells you what is right and what is wrong? Not only do you write that down, you trace its evolution, how you came to develop those beliefs, and then you prove through example how you live those beliefs in your life. That's what these members of the military have to do. How many of us have ever performed that exercise? Uh, it's a real worthwhile one. I would recommend people, you know, give it a try. It's very difficult, but it really it helps you understand your own, your own motivations, your own soul, your own heart. And oftentimes in that process, you come to that place. When you do that kind of analysis of your values and how they relate to war, how those values tell you that this war might be wrong, because that's where people are coming from. Your, your objection by law can't be political. But, of course, everybody is coming from a, a particular political space in, in time. That's your frame of reference. Your frame of reference is you were in Iraq, or your frame of reference is you were in Afghanistan, or you played some kind of support role for this war-making in 2015, in this modern time. But that is a place that people will springboard from to realize, no, all war is wrong. This isn't just something that, this isn't an isolated incident. This isn't just something that happened today. This isn't just something that happened with this kind of technology. Um, they get to that place where they realize when they really dig deep, and, and pull back all those layers and reveal their core values, yeah. they realize that they cannot reconcile their conscience with any war. I, I, I wish more people would get to that point, of course, as you do. But, you know, this week, not only did the United States blow up a hospital in Afghanistan, and all of my friends and peace activists who've been saying stop bombing Afghanistan for 14 years kept saying it, uh, but also Russia started bombing Syria. And uh, peace activists who have not only gone through writing down their beliefs, but have sat in police vans with me and gone to jail for their beliefs and resisted uh, military funding and, and preparations for war, as well as particular wars, started cheering for Russian bombs in Syria, because somehow that will bring law and order and oppose the U.S. bombing in Syria. Now, shouldn't we be supporting conscientious objection among the Russians in the military as well. Isn't that what Tolstoy would have done? Or, or you know, somehow do, do people think they oppose all wars and they don't really? There, there comes along a different aspect and now it's okay. Absolutely, we should be supporting conscientious objectors. How can we ask someone, if you're a peace activist and you've taken your body, you've, you've either by active decision or by default taken your body out of participation in war. A lot of people have resisted taxes, I think you just alluded to, so that they take their dollars actively out of the act of war. But then you would allow someone else, someone else's body, someone else's dollars to do what you yourself have said no, you cannot do. That, that doesn't seem like uh, it's, a, it's a very fair um, decision to make or a very fair position to hold because there are going to be consequences, not just for the people who are, who are burned alive in their beds because they can't escape, for the people who lose limbs, but for the people who carry out the war. We have 
decades and decades and generations and generations of people that we know of, that are our family members, that are our community members, who suffer the tragic consequences of war, even the good war. How many people have a grandpa who never talked about the war? He was in the good war, the World War II. That was the good war, but he never talked about it, or he had a drinking problem. Tens of thousands of people resisted World War II, the good war. There are volumes written about why that was not a good war. Quakers who founded our organization were among the groups that founded our organization, refused to fight, but that didn't mean that they weren't putting their bodies on the line in some other way. I have a dear friend whose name some people may recognize, Dory Bunting. She's a, a Quaker. She's in her 90s. In 1939, her Quaker parents sent her to do solidarity with the Jews in Germany. These people were not afraid of confrontation. They weren't afraid of nonviolent conflict to solve problems. They put their bodies on the line, but they knew that war was not going to solve anything. How is war going to continue to solve any of the problems in Afghanistan or in Syria or with ISIS? War created those problems. War is at the heart, and so it can never be the solution. Is, is, is World War II, Maria Santelli of uh, Center on Conscience and War, is World War II still predominantly the, the package of, of myths that lead to people <laughs> resisting the idea that all war is wrong? I mean, it, it's, it seems to me, you know, despite all the missteps from the ending of World War I forward that led unnecessarily to World War II and all of the evil of World War II that made war about killing civilians and, uh, and the absolute irrelevance of the killing of the the Jews and others in the camps, which had nothing to do with U.S. motivations in World War II. It, it seems to me that for the entire existence of your organization for 75 years, uh, people have been saying, well, this war is bad, but World War II was good, uh, so I can't oppose all war. Is, does this, is World War II really the, the problem in terms of education? Still is. I was just at a hearing uh, down at Dahlgren Naval Base in Virginia uh, on September 24th. One of our Navy conscientious objectors and his investigating officer asked him, come on, really? What about World War II? What do you think we should have done there? Do you think we should have just allowed that slaughter of millions of people? And yes, it is absolutely still held up and, and even, uh, you know, tossed out into conscientious objectors' faces. Of course, now we add to that, well, what about 9-11? Shouldn't we, we, we can't, we couldn't have retaliated. We shouldn't have sought justice for 9-11. Uh, also, we we now hear about ISIS, of course. Um, one of our Air Force officers that we worked with uh, is, a, is a Christian. Now, again, um, the modern definition of conscientious objection, back in 1940 when we started, you could only be a religious objector. Your objection could only be based on your religion. Now we have folks who the law has opened up over the last uh, 75 years through court challenges, and an atheist can be a conscientious objector. Uh, a Buddhist, obviously, uh, an agnostic, any any moral or ethical objection uh, to war counts legally as a conscientious objector. But this particular Air Force officer was a Christian, and he, his conscience crystallized when uh, when the Christians were um, were held uh, by ISIS and under siege last summer, 2014, and were being. Um, exterminated in, in great numbers. And he searched his heart, and as a Christian, he thought, do I believe in using war to save other Christians? 
And when the answer, when his own answer was no, I cannot support war, even to save a minority of Christians in, in this community, uh, that is when he knew he had to seek a separation from the military. Uh, I think people... You know, I think our, our conscience tells us if we take the time to search, our conscience will tell us that war is wrong, that war is only going to lead to more war. How can the United States, especially now with, with what just happened on Saturday, how can the United States build any more trust of the people of Afghanistan? How can the United States actually be the partner uh, with the Afghan government to, to uh, you know, get rid of the Taliban or, or to, you know, to, to unify the people of Afghanistan. How can we do that when, when this, is, this is our tactic, when, our, when war only serves to divide? Indeed. It, uh, it brings more war, and it created that danger to those Christians. It didn't arise out of nowhere. It arose out of past wars. Um, That's well, right. What if, uh, what if you're not in the military? Um, what if you're not paying taxes? What if you're just turning 18, and, uh, and you're supposed to register, at least if you're male, right? You're supposed to register for the draft. Should you do that? Well, that's that's an individual matter of conscience, and and we support people who who take who make any choice. Uh, it's pretty devastating. I mean, people think, oh, a draft is never coming back. Well, probably not. A draft probably does not have the popular support in this country to actually become reality. But one of the roles of our organization, especially being based in Washington, D.C., is that we monitor what's going on with the Selective Service System, a $26 million organization, by the way, who has a dual mission, and the mission is supposed to be equal. Both sides of the mission are supposed to be equal. The first is to provide personnel to the DOD provide bodies to the war machine. That's half of the Selective Service System's mission. The other half is to provide for the conscientious objector community in time of war. That means that they provide alternative civilian service for conscientious objectors, and that's a victory that our organization won 75 years ago, because before that, in World War I, conscientious objectors were forced to do uh, non-combat military service, so they still were part of the war machine. So today, a young man may still have uh, reservations, just putting his name on a piece of paper, just getting on that list to be, uh, to be provided to the DOD, to be personnel that the Selective Service provides to the DOD, that in and of itself can be a violation of conscience for the young man. Because outside of an active draft, the Selective Service does not register conscientious objectors. That's good and bad. It's, it's unfortunate for people for whom, you know, it is a violation of their conscience to register. But it's okay because it puts everybody on an even playing field. You know, maybe you didn't know what conscientious objection was, and so you didn't register as a conscientious objector. And then in the event of a draft, you're not at a disadvantage from someone who was raised with that vernacular and with that identity. So for a young man who it is a violation of their conscience to register, we, uh, we have a, a loan program that, that young men can apply to to help them finance college because, of course, um, they are cut out of many of the benefits of citizenship simply for resisting uh, putting their name on that line. Um, but it's, it's becoming less and less of an issue. Uh, because there are these laws that we have on the books in some 40 states plus the District of Columbia that actually associate your driver's license or your state ID 
with registering for the draft. And so a young man, in many cases, does not even have the opportunity to exercise his conscience. He doesn't have the opportunity, as the law says, to present himself. He is indeed presented by his Department of Motor Vehicles <laughs> to the Selective Service Department. Uh, so, so the government has seen that when given a choice, young men will resist putting their name on this list. We saw in the 80s some young men being prosecuted, and they got to tell their story for not registering. They got to tell their story on the evening news. And to the government's surprise, the sympathy was with the resistors. And so that sort of, uh, for lack of a better word, that sort of backfired in the government's face. So they no longer prosecute young men who choose not to register, but they cut them out of these benefits of citizenship, having never been prosecuted, let alone convicted, of any crime. You will be deprived of financial aid uh, from from the federal government and from some state uh, from some state governments and from some institutions of higher education, and you'll also be deprived in many states of the ability to obtain a driver's license or state issued ID. And you say, Maria, you say in some forty states they just automatically, when they've got your information at the DMV or or whatever, they automatically register you for the draft. I think we're at two states now that automatically register you to vote. So you can see where the priorities are uh, in the U.S. government. Uh, It's, you know, go fight, go kill people in the name of democracy is significantly more prioritized than actual democracy. Um, What what about, uh, I, I think in these recent wars, the U.S. military has seen a lot more people just desert then go through trying to conscientiously object. Uh, which is, which is better? <laughs> well, it's it's tough. I mean, there's no question about it. It's a long process to legally seek discharge. Um, it takes at the very very minimum. It will take five months, and that's if everybody does everything they should exactly at the time that they should do it. Uh, But that's rare, as you can imagine, because we're talking about the military. People think, oh, the military is very regimented. Everything's very efficient. That that couldn't be further from the truth. Uh, There's a lot of sloppiness. There's a lot of laziness. And there's just a lot of dragging of feet in the military. In addition to that, conscientious objection is not a priority for the Department of Defense, as you can imagine. And so people end up doing spending a lot of time waiting uh, they are protected to some extent once they submit once they declare themselves a conscientious objector uh, the, the DOD policy does say that they are to be given duties that conflict as little as possible with their stated beliefs that means they're not going to be you know required to train with weapons or to fire weapons and things like that but of course every job in the military supports the ability for the, you know for the military to make war that's what it's for that's what it exists for so so it is hard it's hard for people to, to endure several months of waiting while their claim is pending. But we see, we see an incredible uh, effect, a transformative effect, just declaring oneself a conscientious objector, just taking that proactive step and, and saying, no, I'm going to reclaim my conscience, I'm going to reclaim my life, and I'm, and, and I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be part of this anymore. And that does often, most times, give them the strength to endure. And for a lot of people, that is important, that they're recognized as conscientious objectors, that it goes up to, in every branch, it goes to the level, to the highest levels of that chain of command in each branch, to the headquarters level. That's where the conscientious objection decision is made. So that's very important for a lot of people. 
For others, they have to remove themselves immediately. It is a matter of, of um, you know, some quite literally sometimes life and death, and they have to take themselves out of the situation immediately. In that case, um, of course, we're there to stand by them as well. You know, I mean, it's that they're, they're no less conscientious objectors just because they might have uh, chosen to discharge themselves. And informally, uh, we say. <laughs> so, uh, you know, I'm not going to um, pass judgment on anyone based on um, whatever they've needed to do personally to uh, obey the highest law, which is their own conscience. In, in one of your recent articles on truthout.org, you say that conscience is contagious. Uh, <laughs> so when people conscientiously object, does that, does that really start a trend? Do you see others conscientiously objecting? Does it make a difference for people to sort of openly take a stand and take a risk uh, for resisting participation? Absolutely, it does. We are busier. I mean, we've really tried. We've, we've been really going out of our way to, to make sure people know that this is an option, that you don't have, you know, too many times in the military, people feel like they have two options, obey your conscience or obey your orders. And a lot of times those two are not the same thing. And we want to make sure people know there is a third choice, and that choice is conscientious objection. And we've tried really hard in the last several years to make, this, make sure people know that. And we've seen the fruits of our labor. We've seen our caseload of conscientious objectors skyrocketing. We, we couldn't be more thrilled. We're really busy, but we couldn't be more thrilled. And the DOD is, has noticed this as well. And we're concerned about this because we see, we see some shenanigans, for lack of a better word, going on that we're not happy with. And we've actually just initiated a congressional inquiry through conscientious objector Congressman John Lewis of Atlanta through his office. He's initiated a congressional inquiry into all four branches to see what's going on. But I've spoken personally um, with a lieutenant colonel in the Marine Corps who said, we're really swamped with conscientious objectors right now. And he was, you know, mad about it. And I said, well, yeah, you don't have to tell me because I'm sending them to you. You know, so they see a rise as well, and they don't like it. Um, So we see it's bad for morale. Um, it's, it's, you know, a lot of times when people submit their applications, their commands will try to bargain with them, make deals with them, try to keep it quiet, um, you know, try to get them out some other way. In fact, they're instructed if there are other ways to get this person out besides conscientious objection, do it. Because if the application proceeds, it compels this conversation around the unit and up the levels of the chain of command. It compels this conversation about the morality of war. And we hear over and over again people's commanders saying to them, I support you, I wish I could do it too, but I have, you know, this such and such excuse or that such and such excuse or I'm this far from retirement. And, they, and, and they're actually quite sympathetic. It is the rare case where someone is, um, is ridiculed or ostracized. Uh, it is actually the rare case. Most people are uh, supported, uh, or at worst, they're tolerated <laughs> as their application is progressing. Well, it may be bad for morale, but I have to assume it's good for survival rates, looking at the suicide rate in, among veterans uh, is so disproportionately higher than for non-veterans, uh, those who go through a process of returning to a law-abiding, non-violent existence must have higher survival rates. We're just about out of time. Maria Santelli from the Center on Conscience and War, where can people go to get involved? What can they do to help you? Well, visit centeronconscience.org, of course, um, and then, uh, as you mentioned, 
the 800 number, which I don't know off the top I, of my I've, head. I've got it. Uh, <laughs> call 800-379-2679. We're on Facebook, uh, Center on Conscience and War. We're on Twitter. Uh, tell everyone that you know that conscientious objection is real. It is alive and well. It is possible. This myth persists that it's impossible. Nobody ever wins. We win all the time. And and. We help conscientious objectors win and, and get their discharge. And uh, as you mentioned, uh, it, is, it is a safer path. It is a healthier path. We see this trauma that members of the military are experiencing now, and we understand it to be moral injury, which is translated as a transgression against the conscience. And we find conscientious objection can be a powerful tool in both preventing and healing moral injury. Maria Santelli, thank you very much for coming on Talk Nation Radio. Thank you so much, David. Take care. This is Talk Nation Radio. I'm David Swanson. Take action at rootsaction.org. Help end war at worldbeyondwar.org. All past shows can be heard at davidswanson.org. Talk Nation Radio is produced in Charlottesville, Virginia, and syndicated by Pacifica Network. If you are listening to a nonprofit station, please support that station. Talk Nation Radio is funded by contributors at davidswanson.org. There is no way to peace. Peace is the way. Until next time.